On this week's segment of uh, Wharton Moneyball, we talk with Sam Munson, who is one of the original uh, stat analysts at uh, Pro Football Focus and is uh, one of the main members of the Pro Football Focus podcast. We had a really interesting discussion about the recent NFL draft, some talk especially about the hometown Eagles and some of their process versus other teams and a lot of discussion about uncertainty and drafting decisions. So uh, tune in for that. Thanks very much. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball here on SiriusXM. We've been coming to you for over nine years now. Same crew, same host, faculty colleagues all here at the Wharton School. Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, and this is Cade Masty joining us. Sam Munson, Sam from Pro Football Focus, PFF, early days employee. I don't know. Do you have an employee number, Sam? We have an employee number from you for PFF? Do you want to claim yeah, your fame there? I think technically we do have them in the database, you know, the, the, the PFF system that lets us log in everything. I, I was in single digits anyway. I'm not sure what my exact number was, but certainly yeah, one of the single digit guys. Spectacular. Well, Sam, we wanted to talk to you today to hear about the draft, um, one of the big events from last week and the biggest offseason event in the NFL cycle. What stands out to you about this year's draft? What do you think the hallmarks of this year's draft were? Yeah, I think there were a lot of things. It's a very unusual draft. Um, Before the draft itself, I think the standouts were the relative weakness, I think, of the draft in in a lot of ways. It wasn't big on really top-end talent. You know, you'd hear people talk about blue-chip prospects every year. There really weren't many this year. And you could argue there weren't any, in fact, um, when you you sort of factor in everything, right? Like Jalen Carter has his legal issues to worry about. Will Anderson maybe never quite hit the heights of the, the true blue chip uh, edge rusher prospects. Each one of the quarterbacks had something that would scare you about them. So you could definitely make the case that there were no blue chips in this, this draft. And then once we got to the draft itself, I, I think the real standout for me, certainly early, was there seemed to be a, a, a huge rate of even players that you didn't necessarily love or guys that had a weakness or, or something to worry about the fit that everybody went to seemed to be unusually good this year. Like guys that had something that needed to be worked on land in the perfect situation to work on it or a specific red flag makes sense. Uh, gone to a particular team. That give us a couple of examples real... of that, Sam. This seems very important, but can you, can you give us a couple of examples? Yeah. So a few of them, I think jump out the, the, the Patriots grabbed a couple of defensive players in their first couple of picks. Christian Gonzalez, Keon White, the edge rusher from Georgia Tech. Both of those guys, I think, are actually quite raw as actual technicians, as prospects. Um, but they go to Bill Belichick, you know, the, the greatest defensive coach of all time. So you get these spectacular athletes that land probably the best possible situation for them to be really good down the line. Jalen Carter, you know, has a couple of issues, whether it's his legal uh, problems, whether it's the fact that he's never played more than, you know, 300, 400 snaps in a season in that really heavy Georgia rotation. He goes to Philadelphia, who A, have a really heavy rotation themselves on the defensive line, and B, have already been stockpiling kind of leaders from that Georgia defense that are probably better placed than anybody to keep Jalen Carter on the straight and narrow, if that's a concern. And then the one more that would jump out is Anthony Richardson, the sort of real block of clay from a a football prospect standpoint. 
goes to Indianapolis, who obviously have a new head coach, Shane Steichen, who comes from Philadelphia, where they've basically just run this game plan with Jalen Hurts over the past few years. So if anybody is going to have an, an understanding of how to prop up a quarterback for a couple of years using the run game, using what they can do on the ground and, and let them develop as a passer, it's it's Shane Sykin in that Indianapolis Colts offense. And I want to ask you two questions. One is about interaction effects and the other is about heterogeneity, but let me frame it in the following way. Let me talk about the interaction one first. How much extra value is there now that the Eagles have four players from Georgia who all played with each other? Do you put any stock, does PFF or does Sam Monson put any stock that there'll be either a faster learning curve or there might actually be interaction effects between players that have played with each other? Then I have a second question also, but let's get to that one first. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we haven't done a, a ton of studies yet in terms of that interactivity and how much the, there is. I know basketball is is much further ahead with that kind of analysis than football is yet. It's definitely a kind of frontier that we're looking to get into. Um, my own kind of personal view on it is it can't hurt, right? I, I don't know if it's having a huge boost effect or anything, but there's no way it's a downside. And again, particularly when you're talking about players like Jalen Carter, you know, a guy that the clearly had as much talent as any defensive player in this draft but is dealing with at minimum some maturity issues you know with his uh, arrest and, and the way that whole thing worked out we're at the very minimum we're dealing with a guy that at least doesn't seem to be as mature as some other prospects out there and surrounding him with teammates that not only uh, were leaders in that Georgia defense guys like Nicobe Dean but guys that have also been in the NFL now for at least a year you know they've had that transition period they've just done it all they understand how it works they can also kind of help them along just in terms of you know where to live what all those kind of really basic things that nobody even thinks about but are probably quite a stressful thing for a guy that's 20 21 years old trying to work out on the fly as he adjusts to being a professional player so yeah i the bottom line is we don't know yet but i suspect there is a uh, a factor and i suspect it helps just one follow-up to something you said earlier do you guys do fatigue curves at all at PFF? The reason I'm asking is, could the seventh best Eagles lineman, because they rotate so many defensive linemen, because they rotate so many players, could that person, even if they're only 85% as good, be better than a fatigued top 20 player who's now playing their 60th, 70th snap of the game? So would I rather have seven people who are maybe not quite as good than as opposed to four that are really good that have to play a lot? The the short answer is we looked into that a long time ago, back before we had intelligent math people, you know, working things in PFF. So back when it was a bunch of guys like me who have a history and politics degree and, you know, Ben Stockwell, whose degrees in biology or something ridiculous like that. We had a whole bunch of guys who had no idea what we're doing. We did look into it on a very basic level. I don't know if the R&D guys since that have actually dived into it too much, but there was evidence that, you know, there is a certainly when from pass rushers, which is the area we we looked at it uh, for, that there was an obvious uh, point at which there's diminishing returns, you know, and, and if you're going to have Jared Allen playing a thousand plus snaps in a season, it's going to have a negative effect at some point. But the critical point is that the point you mentioned, where is that crossover? You know, where does it right, become exactly. less uh, worthwhile having Jared Allen on the field versus his backup? Um, another questionable move that people take shots at were, you know, the lions, they made a couple of maybe questionable moves, but what's your position now on, on running backs and 
a couple of interesting things about the first round running backs, Bijan at eight and then Jameer Gibbs at whatever that number was, 12, 13, uh, well, 14. Oh, I think, yeah. Um, so Bijan, obviously some people had him on consensus, one of the top, I don't know, very high on the board just overall, but then, you know, our running backs that valuable. He's a little exceptional in that way. And then Jameer Gibbs might be exceptional because the running behind that lion's line might prove, you know, quite, quite productive, but, in general, we're inclined to be skeptical. What are your What are your thoughts about the running backs in in round round one? I think they're I think they're two different or different conversations. I think they're separate entities. Um, Bijan Robinson falls into the category uh, to me of he's special enough that you at least have the conversation about which rules, which tenets of running back production and value and all those kinds of things. Which ones are we prepared to bend for Bijan Robinson? Because okay. I think he's special enough that he starts to go into the Quentin Nelson category of he changes the rules. Quentin Nelson is a guard. You don't take a guard in the top 10. They did. And Quentin Nelson wasn't just the best guard in the NFL. He was the most valuable offensive lineman in the NFL for the first three, four years of his career, according to PFF Wars numbers. So and he Sam, by the, by the way, that that was that was well forecasted by people as well. People thought he was a basically a no risk prospect at a lower exactly. positional. And, value. and that's that's where I think it does start to change things when the degree of certainty that a guy isn't just going to be good, but is going to be, you know, special. Is that clear? I think you can start to ask those questions of, OK, this is where we would normally draft a running back, like all regular circumstances. But we know this guy is different. How different, you know, how much are we prepared to bend on those rules? So I think Bijan Robinson belongs in the first round. I think you could make a strong case for him to get taken in anywhere in the second half of the first round. And then once you start to get higher than that, that's when I think you need to look at it case by case and say, okay, how good is that team? You know, what else are they leaving on the table? All those kinds of things. I I wouldn't have picked him if I was Atlanta. I'd have thought about it if I was Philadelphia, but that's probably in a Jalen Carter, non-Jalen Carter world, you know, where he's not on the board. But, mm-hmm. you know, borderline top 10, I think you could make an argument for Bijan. Jameer mm-hmm. Gibbs, I think, is a much different case. I think that's just a harder sell across the board. Yes, he's fast. Yes, he's got some skills. But, you know, the difference between Jameer Gibbs in the first round and, you know, a guy like Devin Achain in the third, I think he ended up going. Like, I just don't think that that's the same conversation, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good. So the Patriots, uh, they, I, I think they always, they always do something unexpected to me uh, in, in uh, the draft. This year, they uh, they took both a punter and a kicker. I think it's the first time in something like 25 years or 20, 20 plus years that a team has taken both a punter and a kicker in the same draft. You know, I, and I probably that doesn't happen very often because people don't usually like to waste their draft resources or waste use their draft resources on those positions. The Patriots do have that the needs at those positions. What do you kind of think about something like that? Is it would you ever want to do that even if you had needs at both punter and kicker? Yeah, I think the the specialist is a difficult um conversation when it comes to drafting certainly the the higher you go the harder it is i I think ultimately it's very difficult to actually identify certainly the kickers punters a little more clear cut i think you can make an easier case there but for kickers i think it's really hard to identify the ones that are actually going to be top tier nfl kickers Mm -hmm. and certainly for the long term because other than justin tucker 
everybody has this moment in the sun and then they tend to go through a period where they just like forget how to kick, get the yips, you know, go into this crisis of confidence and are almost invariably drop kicked out of the building from whatever roster they're on. And then they have to resurface somewhere else where they right. go through like a second career. You know, Daniel Carlson right now is a good example of that. The the Vikings had to get rid of him because he missed a couple of really critical kicks for them. And he was that highly touted, you know, uh, decent prospect. And now he's one of the better kickers in the NFL for the Raiders. But do we know that that's going to continue? Or are we six months away from Daniel Carlson having another crisis of confidence and then the mm-hmm. whole cycle starting again? So if unless you can find Justin Tucker, it seems really difficult to sort of bank a draft pick on on getting that guy. Sebastian Janikowski, what was yeah, your first so, I mean, it is worth like pointing out that the last time it did happen was the Raiders taking Sebastian Janikowski and Shane Lecter in the same draft. And both of them ended up being incredible at their position. I mean, if you could, if you could get the uh, Shane Lecter and Sebastian Janikowski out of a draft, I think you would do it. But I think, I think Janikowski is another one of Sam's, maybe for this player, you've been the rules. If you're so sure, <laughs> if this is Quentin Nelson, if this is Bijan Robinson, I mean, hopefully Bijan works out that way. We did feel that way about Sebastian Janikowski. Now, every time you feel that way, it doesn't work out. But and I mean, did. he was a first round pick too. So I feel I like exactly. And and even with like he ended up being a really good kicker over his career, but even at the start of his career, wasn't looking great. And I don't know if he would have made it to that, you know, to the the point that he did oh, if he hadn't been a first round pick. Like if he'd just been a regular oh, that's a good point. Fifth, fifth round kicker, Seabass might have ended up being a star for the Chargers down the line instead of right. the Raiders. <laughs> right. So, so Sam, let me ask a question. But I, by the way, I, this isn't a, my question. Just a comment. Maybe you guys are forgetting my Buccaneers picking Roberto Aguayo. But let's ignore that for a second. By the way, which I think was more recent than Janikowski. But maybe I've got the years messed up. But either way, no, definitely. Uh, okay, yeah. So here, here's my question: the type of counterfactual thinking that both you and Kay just mentioned. For me to draft B. John Robinson, he'd have to be the next Saquon Barkley. For me to draft this kicker, he'd have to be the next Justin Tucker. How much of that, and I think that's a great way to put it, and how sure are you that that's actually true? How much of that, I'll call it comparison and counterfactual thinking, do you think for, uh, teams go through when they're thinking about drafting a player in, or he has to be the next Quentin Nelson? Yeah, well, good luck. Or Anthony Munoz. Yeah, good luck on that. So how much of that thinking do teams do from an analytics perspective so that that in some sense, drafting a running back or a guard, which people or a kicker, which people say you should never do, but it would be under certain counterfactual thinking. How do you think about that? Yeah, I think the answer is probably too much, which is where it gets difficult, right? Because I'm convinced this year that Bijan Robinson is probably in that Quentin Nelson bucket of being special enough that it changes the rules. But when you start looking for that, that's how you get into trouble. And you start looking for the exceptions mm-hmm. instead of you know, playing the percentages and then eventually an exception will manifest and will show itself. And it's that knowing when to break the rules, I think, is really the key to all of this. And and at the moment, I suspect teams look for it a little bit too much and default a little bit too much in saying this guy is special. This guy is an exception. What, well, really, let me give, you, let me me give an example. There's a terrific example from this draft from this, you know, from a very high profile guy later in the draft. So. The Eagles, the 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 kings of stacking edges, the kings of following the rules. What's the biggest rule? What's the single biggest edge you can get in the draft? It's to it's to trade a current pick for a, a better pick next year. 
the returns, when we estimated that years ago, the returns were like 137%. It's just, and that's not a typo. And I mean, literally 137% in a year, that's the return you get in expectation following that simple rule that you get around improvement if you wait a year. So here's the, and, and teams want to do that. And the smart teams actively pursue it. And here come the Eagles in round four, I think this year, and they see Kelly Ringo on the board. And they're excited about him. And they say that he was so good and so high on their board that it was worth next year's third round pick. And so it's exactly this example of what Sam's saying is like, there's a hard, important rule here. This is this, one of the sharpest teams in the league. And they made an exception because their assessment of Ringo was that he was that good. Right. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think, and by the way, that begs the question of, well, if you thought he was that good, why didn't you just trade back into the third round this year, you know, <laughs> and take him in the first place? Like, why do we need to go to the trouble of messing around with next year's third round pick? Well, let me ask you a question, Sam. Kate's question brings up a fascinating point. How likely is it that a fourth round pick, year T, would be greater than any third round pick one could get in year T minus one or T plus one? Because that's basically a 30 spot difference. So is there that much year-to-year variation where something like that, playing the odds, I don't mean a specific instance, but if one's going to play this game for the long run, would one ever trade forward for, you know, round, you know, fourth round one year, trading a third round or the next year? Yeah, the only time I'd be I'd be willing to do that is if you had a pretty strong early indication that the next year's draft class was a lot worse than this one, you know, and you're willing is my point, a lot worse. Yeah, and you're willing to play that game because you think the picks next year are just not going to be anything like as as valuable as they are this year. I don't think that works this year because I think this year's draft was reasonably weak and the chances of next year's being even worse just based off what we know about that year's draft already. I, I just don't think that's a, a big uh, a factor in this one at all. Um, but that would be the only circumstance I think you'd be willing to entertain that as a, a concept. You talked a little bit about the Eagles trading back, you know, trading trading to get to get uh, Ringo, I guess, in the fourth round. But what troubles me a little bit is why wouldn't other teams come up with the same view if he was such a sure thing relative to his draft position, obviously? Uh, it seems that they are making some sort of gamble here, at least implicitly statistically. I'm seeing that I'm seeing that they have to be either seeing something that other people don't see, or they're doing which could be, um, or which is great on their 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 score, or they're taking a chance. Yeah, I, I think they're taking a chance. They they like Keely Ringo. Um, you know, his biggest selling point is a couple of things. He's very young, which is worth pointing out. You know, there is theoretically development to be done there. They also have a couple of starters. They don't need him to play right away. You know, they they might be projecting what they can create out of Keely Ringo and, and thinking that's worth the shot. And he's really, he's got the physical size. He's like 6'2", 210 pounds. Like he's built like you want a cornerback to be built. He's got straight line speed as well. Where he falls down is change of direction that just isn't there right now. You you know you hear this stiff hipped type of thing from scouts, but it shows up in change of direction numbers as well. They don't. Uh, he almost has that overlap thing where the guy has a faster forty time than a short shuttle time, which is extremely rare, but tends to very strongly signify guys that do not change directions well. Trey Waynes had that years ago, and that was a real sort of uh, hallmark of his play. So. There's definitely risks with Keely Ringo, and there, you know, there's a reason that he slid as far as he did. He was uh, th- talked about as a fringe first-round guy on the consensus board and ended up slipping as far as he did. So, yeah, the the only conclusion you can have about that, I think, is 
Philadelphia is rolling the dice that he's a better player than most everybody else thinks he is. So we do see smart teams do this, sharp teams do this. And the fact that they stack edges as often as they do gives them more room to make these plays. And of course, you give them license to do it. I mean, it, it all depends on their assessment on a given player. And as long as they're not doing that all the time, then right. who are we really to argue? They've got their assessment. They need to live by their assessment. Sam, we're going to have to let you go. But on the way out, maybe you can give us one question that you're taking away from this draft that you're going to be especially interested to see play out over the next year or two years. What's one thing you're curious about? And you're really curious whether it's going to play out well or poorly for somebody who made that call. I I guess the the most pressing one is probably uh, CJ Stroud. Um, The talk about CJ Stroud and the S2 cognition scores that were sort of widely leaked and circulated around to me is fascinating. Um, we don't know what S2 cognition really means yet. You know, it's a pretty new test. It's just sort of gaining popularity. Everybody's talking about it right now. Obviously, the early sort of signs that they're they're pointing to as the, the guys that own the thing are, you know, there's a really tight correlation between guys that score really high and, and being really good NFL players. Brock Purdy scored in the 90s. Drew Brees was in the 90s. You know, all these good players with these really high scores. What we don't know is what happens when a guy hits the league scoring you know, under the 20th percentile somewhere, which is what CJ Stroud is reported to, to have scored. Um, a guy who's, I think you see that on his tape. You see some issues with uh, immediate kind of cognition, quick uh, lightning adjustments on the play, play under pressure, all those kinds of things. So did this test show something that was there, was, was a weakness in his game and could be a real cap on his play? Or is he going to be the outlier? You know, he said something like, I'm, I'm not a tester, I'm a football player. Is he going to be able to show that, okay, S2 is a nice thing, but it's like the Wonderlick. It doesn't really mean that you're going to be a good or a bad player. It's just another data point out there. So seeing how CJ Stroud goes over the next few years, I think is probably the most interesting thing from this draft. It's super interesting and high value being the number two pick in the draft and consequential being the quarterback. Super, super interesting. All right. Listen, Sam, thanks, man. Thanks for the time. Thanks for the thoughts. Super insightful spending a little time with you here this afternoon. No problem. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Sam Monson, lead NFL analyst at Pro Football Focus. You can follow him on Twitter, PFF underscore Sam, PFF underscore Sam. Also, he hosts the PFF NFL podcast with Steve Palazzolo, one of our longtime guests here on Wharton Moneyball. All right, guys, for this week, that has been Wharton Moneyball. Thank you guys for listening, for the whole crew here. Appreciate you all listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.